WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and as always, it's great to be here. Uh, You may be listening for the first time, and if you are, this is an hour-long program where We take people's questions concerning the Bible, maybe a passage you've been struggling with or a specific application you're looking for as it relates to your life and ministry in your local assembly. If you'd like to call us, you can directly. Again, the local number is 525-1859. We have quite a number of listeners through the Internet every week, and that toll-free number, if you want to reach us, is 877. The call letters W-A-G-P. 980. Or if you prefer, you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. tbl at wagp.net. If you do call, we always give, of course, preference to live callers. Uh, and uh, some don't want to go on the air and they're simply comfortable dictating their call. And we're always happy to receive it in that fashion as well. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today, and um, I think we've had quite a number of email questions already come in, and so maybe we're going to start there. We do indeed, and a couple that we didn't get an opportunity to uh, get to last week that had dictated their question. So we'll go to that first one right now. I'm just checking to make sure that this is the person that doesn't want to go on live. doesn't appear they are. So uh, let's go to that question. A caller wanted to know um, if you would please explain Revelation 21, verse 7 and 8, where it seems like salvation is based on works as well. All right, let me just turn there, and I have it opened. Um, let me read it, because not everyone has the benefit of a, a copy of the Scriptures in front of them. John writes here in the Revelation, uh, He who overcomes shall inherit these things. What things? Well, the the uh, new heaven, the new earth, and be a part of the new Jerusalem, which will be the capital city of that new heaven. And he says, he who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Um, No, John is not teaching salvation by works, uh, both through his Gospels, uh, the three letters he wrote, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and here in the Revelation, he teaches justification by grace alone through faith alone. However, John, uh, much like in the Gospel of John, and especially in 1st John, and here in Revelation, he affirms that if someone is genuinely saved, then their life changes. He's not teaching that the absence of these things is the basis of salvation. But he is reminding us that these are indeed the evidences of salvation, that when a person 
uh, comes to genuine faith in Christ, he's no longer cowardly and unbelieving without faith. Uh, he is open about his faith. He, he no longer, if he was an immoral person, lives in a life of immorality. That's not to say that he couldn't fall into immorality, but that's not what characterizes his lifestyle. Uh, a little bit later in this same chapter, let me see here, um, here it is in verse 27, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices, and I would underscore the word practice, much like Paul does in Galatians 5, when he says, walk by the Spirit that you might not carry out the desires of the flesh. And then he'll give a litany of those aspects that the old fleshful, sinful nature can produce. And he says, those who practice such things have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now, it's not that a Christian couldn't commit lying or be immoral. He could. But if this is their lifestyle, they have evidence that they are not converted. And so he says, and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever enter, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. Uh, Again, in the uh, 22nd chapter, here it is in the 15th verse, he says, outside, outside of the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. So again, he's not teaching salvation by works. Um, It's often been said that Calvin said this, so there's no record anywhere that he did say it, but he certainly taught it as all Bible believing Christians have throughout the centuries that we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. So if we are genuinely saved, our life will change. And our li- if our life has not changed, it's just giving clear, undisputable evidence that we've never truly met the living Savior. Because if any man's in Christ, he is a new creation. Great question. I think we have a live caller waiting. So I think we're going to go there next. We do indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning, Brother Rick. This is Brother Talib. And um wanted to just readdress your sermon that you preached on um, this past Sunday, you were in the middle of telling the congregation about a gentleman you witnessed to just recently, and you um, quoted First John five thirteen to him. But I was interested in hearing the rest of the story. Did he rebut what you uh, brought to his attention, or did he accept Christ and your furthering witnesses to him? He, he did receive Christ. So, yes, uh, there was a good good ending to that story. Amen. Yes. Okay. Well, I thought that was um, just uh, appropriate since we are coming up on the uh, Billy Graham uh, program. Yeah, we are. You know, uh, not everyone listening is aware of this. Um, My Hope, which is uh, Billy Graham's last crusade, it will take place on the 7th of November in churches all across America, our own including, will be hosting My Hope meetings in their homes. Uh, So this is a little different type of crusade. The Graham organization recognizes that the uh, traditional crusade where you could get thousands and tens of thousands of people to come and fill a stadium that at least right now, spiritually speaking, that's a thing of the past in America. So they are taking an approach that they've done in a number of different countries in a very targeted way. They're asking Christians to open their homes and to invite people to come and uh, hear a message by Dr. Billy Graham, the host 
or the designated person that the host selects will then, after Dr. Billy Graham's, it's about a 20-minute message. It's just been completed last week. Um, He will get up and share his testimony in three minutes or less and then give an invitation for people to receive Christ. Now, if that's something that interests you, uh, we are training people right now on Sunday mornings for the next three weeks on how to do this, how to be a host or how to have a friend that might help you in that process of hosting a Billy Graham outreach. So this is, uh, I just think God's hand is in this and it's very exciting and uh, it's an opportunity for Christians all across America to to reach out. Anyway, uh, thanks to Lib for that comment. Appreciate it. Let's go to our next caller. They're waiting patiently. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Yes. Good morning. Um, I was reading John this morning, his his account of the resurrection, and it it never struck me before in, until today. I mean, I know I know by the scourging that Jesus was whipped mercilessly, and his flesh was torn and bruised and battered, and yet when he appeared to the disciples, the only wounds visible were those on his hands, feet, and his side. And I was just wondering if, I I know that he he had a glorified body at that time, and if he only had those wounds visible just to help his disciples believe in his resurrection. I just wanted your, your opinion of that, Pastor Brogy. Well, it's a good question. Um, the instrument that they used to scourge a person uh, had long leather straps, and embedded in the ends of the straps were little pieces of metal and glass. And they would take it across a person's back and make it literally raw like hamburger. Uh, the Romans were masters at it. They knew how to take the skin off without taking out the internal organs. And so that would be typical before a crucifixion. When Christ appeared to the disciples in the upper room, he had a robe on. And it's very possible that the scourging scars are still on his glorified body. We don't know. But what he did show his disciples were his hands and his feet. And the scars of his crucifixion are in his glorified body, his hands and feet scars. We know that for sure. Uh, there's an old hymn, Rich Wounds Visible Yet Above, and that's good theology because he retained that. And even the resurrected body that the disciples saw the Lord Jesus in uh, will not be the full expression of his glory that we will see in the, uh, that's uh, pictured in heaven in the, in the Revelation. Uh, he is um, described in Revelation 19, Uh, He's described in the first part of the Revelation, and it's an amazing picture. Uh, In fact, his body is so bright and so glorious, the Bible says there'll be no S-U-N, no sun needed to light heaven because the S-O-N will light heaven. And this, of course, is what Malachi the prophet had foretold and John and the vision that the Lord gives him in that great revelation actually gets a picture and a glimpse of what that is like. So um, we can say what we know for sure, and we know for sure that the wounds in his hands and his feet are still visible above and will be for all of eternity as a forever reminder of what he did to purchase our redemption. And for that, we praise him. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. 525-1859, toll free, 877 
888-528-7980 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And you can also uh, email us at tbl at wagp.net, as has this listener. She writes, if you look at the teaching and literature of the Puritans, you find some of the most compassionate and caring efforts to love our fellow men that could be found anywhere. Yet, they apparently got caught up in witch hunts, etc., and are widely caricatured as harsh and judgmental. What happened to them? Are there reputable books outlining that denomination's history or decline? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. Um, there are basically four streams of Christianity from the time of the Reformation forward. There's the Anglican stream, there's the Orthodox stream, there's the Catholic stream, and there's the Protestant stream. Of course, the large institutional church during the time of the Protestant Reformation, the most visible was Roman Catholicism, though, of course, the Orthodox Church was in place since 1000 AD when the schism took place between the East and the West. In either case, um, during the time of the Protestant Reformation, uh, you had people who were never a part of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, independent churches, just like a community Bible church. And there was a number of uh, believers who met in homes and in various places to worship the living Christ. And they had local assemblies where they had elders and deacons and so forth. And they had nothing to protest because they were not a part of the Roman Catholic Church. Those people, the Wallacenes and others, tend not to get that much press. The people who get the most press are those who were members of the Roman Catholic Church, like Swingley, Melanchthon, Luther, Calvin, and others, who left the Roman Catholic Church, who protested some of their doctrines. In fact, the name Protestant was a name given by Catholics of those who were refuting some of their teachings during the day. Of course, in addition, you have people like Henry VIII, who wants to divorce. I forgot it was his fifth or sixth wife, and the Roman Catholic Church wouldn't give him a divorce. So he said, well, if you won't give me a divorce, I'll just start my own church. And so we have the foundation for the Church of England. Um, in either case, you have these four major streams, Orthodox, Anglican, Catholic, and Protestant. Out of the Protestant stream comes different groups, like the Puritans. Uh, the Puritans, of course, are in England. They do not appreciate the fact that they don't have freedom to worship as they desire. And so they leave England. They initially go to Holland. They're concerned over the fact that their children are learning Dutch better than they are English. And they're afraid they're going to lose some of their English distinctives. And so they decide to come to this new world we call America. And they come not with a view towards religious freedom, but with a view towards practicing religion as they choose to practice it, as they want to practice it. Uh, religious freedom breaks out after that. In either case, uh, the Puritans, it, it's hard to kind of nail them down sometimes because sometimes they are described in a single fashion, but some of them are very Anglican. In their theology, some are separatists, some are independent, some are Presbyterian, and some are even Baptists uh, in terms of their ecclesiology, uh, how they structure their churches. For the most part, though, they're more Anglican with a little bit of uh, Presbyterianism than anything else. But some are Baptists, some are separatists, some are independents. Um, doctrinally, some are 
um, strong Calvinists, some are moderate Calvinists, some are even Arminian. And so when people describe the Puritans sometimes, they describe them simply in one fashion, and that's not really fair to them because it wasn't representative of them. But those who are really strongly Calvinistic uh, basically uh, uh, embrace a lot of the themes that John Calvin embraced, namely that the church, the body of Christ, had replaced national Israel, that they were in essence the new Israel. And so just like Calvin wanted to run Geneva like a theocracy, some of the Puritans felt the need to run places like Salem, Massachusetts, like a theocracy. Now, the witch hunts, you know, we make them into a bigger deal as they were. I mean, they were real, but there was a total of eight witches that were hung along with two dogs that they thought were possessed, and that was the full extent of it. But why did they do that? Well, because sorcery was punishable by death under theocratic Israel. The problem is we have not replaced national Israel, but they thought we had. And so some Puritans embraced uh, that mindset, but certainly not all Puritans because they're, they're, they're pretty widespread in terms of some of their doctrine, though you will read books on the history of Puritanism that usually uh, sometimes just capsulize them into one group. Um, there's a book uh, by John Hanna, Reformation in Enlight- Enlightenment Church History. And uh, that does a good job, in my opinion. John Hanna is probably the foremost church historian who's alive. Uh, anything you read by John Hanna, uh, Mark Knoll is also decent. He's a good, solid church historian who's alive. Anything by those two men. John Hanna, I would put first. I would count him as the premier church hyster- historian who's alive. And anything by him is accurate, extremely thorough, and uh, very, very instructive. Um, so if you want to read something on the Puritan, just Google John Hanna Puritans, and you'll get some books that will come up, and I think you'll find those really helpful. Appreciate that question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. We uh, had a caller last week who says, uh, or actually today, who says that John MacArthur teaches limited atonement. She says that this teaching divides believers. So she wonders why his ministry is carried on WAGP. Well, um, it is certainly a divisive issue among the body of Christ. There's a number of issues that divide believers. And there are some issues that we hold on to with a tight hand. I saw a note on my desk uh, when I came in yesterday to work and uh, from a pastor in Walterboro who was calling me about some things that John MacArthur said on the radio yesterday uh, in terms of some of his Calvinistic persuasions. Uh, there was a time when John, uh, when John MacArthur was purely a, a four-point Calvinist. He has gone into five-point Calvinism now, and he does believe in the doctrine of a limited atonement, that Jesus did not die for all, but just for those who would believe. Um, it seems very logical, but I don't think it's certainly a biblical doctrine. Hey, listen, you know, uh, there are no Bible teachers that are infallible. There are some doctrinal issues that John MacArthur has changed on. Uh, if you read his uh, commentary on Hebrews uh, in that, uh, I don't think they've come out re- with a revised issue yet, but in his original commentary on Hebrews, he denies the 
eternal sonship of Christ, not the eternality of Christ. There's a difference. He affirms, of course, the deity of Christ and essential to deity is that there is no beginning or end, but that he was eternally the son, even before his incarnation. That has been a doctrine that most Christians have embraced through the ages. Uh, He was challenged on that repeatedly by conservative evangelicals and later changed his opinion and said, I was wrong. I, I, I misrepresented God's word. Well, I think he's wrong on limited atonement. But he's right on so many other things. That's why we carry him on WAGP. I don't think you'll find any two pastors who agree 100% on every single jot and tittle. But on all the majors, he is right on, and he's on target. And um, he's more Calvinistic, certainly, than I am. And, but that's not a reason for me to say I'm going to scrap this guy. Uh, he's, uh, he's willing to, because he does preach the Bible expositionally, address a lot of issues that people are afraid to address and afraid to touch in our day that pastors all across America should be teaching on if they're faithful to the word of God. And so, um, that's why we carry him and we will continue to carry him. We won't carry any heretic, but again, let me just say parenthetically here that, There are some doctrines you hold with a tight fist, and there are some doctrines that you hold with an open hand. There are some doctrines that are tests of orthodoxy, like the virgin birth, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, that he died in our place as a full and total payment for sin, Uh, that he literally, physically, actually, not spiritually, but physically was raised from the dead, that he will physically, literally come again to judge the living and the dead, that the Bible is an errant. It is the infallible word of God without a single mistake in it. Those are non-negotiable doctrines. And if anyone denies any of those, they are not orthodox. They are heterodox. And they are teaching something that is foreign to what the scriptures say. There are other doctrines in scripture that we have to hold with an open hand uh, because they're not tests of orthodoxy. And so some of my brethren listening to me today practice infant baptism, and they do that by saying, well, the first generation of adults who were circumcised were, you know, male adults, and after that on the eighth day, and so they make a parallel between that old covenant with the new covenant. Well, the first generation of believers were obviously adults, and now God wants us to baptize our infants into the covenant. Well, I think they're wrong, but you could hold that and still hold to the substitutionary atonement, the virgin birth, the literal resurrection, the literal return of Christ, the infallibility of the Bible, as say all my PCA friends do, but they're wrong on infant baptism. Now, they would say, I may be wrong. But that's not a test of orthodoxy, and I'm not going to break fellowship with them over such an issue. And so I would differ with John MacArthur on some of his teachings. But I would say with most of what he teaches, it's very sound. And uh, and so that's why we we carry him. Appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. Uh, Dave from Situate, Rhode Island writes, My Christian sister mostly talks about super beings people bred with animals, also aliens who are on earth looking like people. It's in the Bible, she says. She was a Christian many years ago and spent 30 years on pot, claiming to be a Christian the whole time. Always believes what people tell her. Talks like an expert and always tries to sell the flavor of the month. Multi-level marketing schemes, medical herbs, 
because doctors don't know what they're doing, every medical issues, etc. She also doesn't try to get to know people personally, but feels free to spew Jesus this and Jesus that. The Holy Spirit told me this and that. They didn't say in Jesus' name at the prayer at the wedding ceremony. She seems to be taken in by everything that comes down the pike. She's extremely tiring to be around and turns off both Christian and non-Christian alike. She and her expertise in everything are insurmountable. You can't reason with someone who only talks and doesn't listen. Your teachings, which stick to the scripture, are extremely welcome in this day and age. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, what immediately comes to my mind is what the Lord Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. He made some very pointed statements that are sobering uh, for anyone to listen to because he tells us that we're to beware of false prophets. And and then after he gives an explanation, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So here he's describing someone like your sister who has an outward confession, but not an inward reality. In fact, you said she's been on pot for 30 years. So what she's doing is she's practicing lawlessness. Every once in a while, someone will say, well, I know the Bible says don't get drunk, but where does it say don't use pot? Well, God calls it sorcery in the Bible. It's in Galatians 5. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. The Greek word is pharmakia. We get our English word pharmacy from it. In fact, drugs have always been the avenue and the channel for many to get involved in the demonic world. And so when you meet some of these uh, rock groups who are on drugs and into demonism, uh, it's not by accident that the two are connected. And after Paul goes through that list, he says, of which I forewarn you as I have forewarned you that those who practice, there's the word again, practice that we read in the Revelation this morning, that we read here in Galatians 5 and we read in Matthew 7, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So there are people who live lifestyles of sin and they practice lawlessness in Jesus' words. And to highlight the seriousness of this, the Lord doesn't go for some ho-hum average testimony. He goes for the most spectacular testimony you might describe. Um, people who preach in his name, people who cast out demons in his name, people who perform miracles in his name. Now, today, if we saw someone preaching in his name, doing a miracle in his name and casting out a demon in his name, we'd say, well, those are the marks of a spirit-filled ministry. Hallelujah. Well, the Lord says, actually, these are people that he never knew. Not I once knew you. Not I once had a relationship and you lost salvation. No, I I never knew you. You can't lose salvation. You can't lose something that's eternal. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And he doesn't deny the ability for people to preach in his name, to cast out demon in his name, and even do miracles in his name. In fact, he'll he'll bring up some of these issues in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. So I would just say, pray for your sister. God's going to have to break through. Um... And if the opportunity comes, you might just remind her, you know, hey, sis, um, 
you have claimed to be a born again believer for three decades, but you know you've smoked smoked pot for three decades, and that's in the list of uh, the deeds of the flesh in Galatians chapter five. So it's not like, you know, it's an occasional joint where you fall back into it. This has been your lifestyle. And the Bible warns that those who live like this have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. In fact, then he will say in verse 24 of chapter 5, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In fact, you might just get her to listen to my message on Matthew 13. Matthew seven thirteen to 27, and ask her for her opinion. Uh, sometimes when you tell people, hey, you know, you're, you're way off base, and there's a place for that, uh, they'll immediately shut down. But sometimes if you say, hey, would you listen to this message and give me your opinion on it? You disarm them a little bit, and uh, they might listen, and maybe God, by his grace and mercy, will break through her lost heart. So anyway, it's a good question. I appreciate it. Um, let's go to the next one. I don't know if we have a live caller there or not. Or all right, um, no, I don't think another we dictated have question we that's do. come in. We oh, do. yeah. All, all right. right. Um, you no. were talking about uh, limited atonement earlier. Uh, another question came in in a different context. Uh, um, Seth writes a couple of Sundays ago. Your sermon in Romans was on limited atonement, and as part of the sermon. You discussed the view of those that believe in a limited atonement, that man cannot go against the will of God. You had also mentioned two aspects of God's will, his determinative and moral wills. The first, we cannot change our impact, and the second, that we can through our execution of free will. The problem I just don't really understand about the limited atonement view is their belief that man cannot go against the will of God, and thus, if God woos them, that they must respond. It just doesn't seem logical to conclude this if Adam and Eve created perfectly in a perfect environment, possessing a perfect relationship with God and not in need of a Savior to redeem them, could of their own free will disobey God's command, not only turning away from the will of God in their lives, but doing so in a state untainted by a sin nature. In a similar manner as the elect, from a limited atonement viewpoint, not able to resist the wooing of God, how then do they continue to sin, which is against the will of God for them as believers, insomuch as they are not conforming to Christ? I've gone back and re-listened to your sermon, as well as started listening to your series on soteriology, but I still feel that there is an element to limited atonement, and specifically how they justify the role of God's will, not only in the act of salvation, but also in sanctification, that I am missing, maybe not grasping or understanding. Well, you're crisscrossing a number of different issues here. And um, the doctrine of limited atonement is different from the doctrine of irresistible grace. Though people who hold to a limited atonement, which is, I think, what you're trying to say, um, do also uh, teach the doctrine of irresistible grace. The doctrine of limited atonement, and sometimes the acrostic TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, is used to summarize uh, what Calvinists teach in terms of the doctrine of salvation. Sometimes when people refer to Calvinism, they just mean election. But actually, Calvinistic teaching is far broader than just what he taught in reference to salvation. So total depravity stands for T. Um, And so... Man is totally depraved. 
unconditional grace. They would say that God's grace is not conditioned on human effort, but it is uh, indeed um, purely and simply grace. And that's true. Uh, It is unconditional. Uh, Man doesn't earn grace. Paul says in Romans 11, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And man is totally depraved. And so that's why God must take the initiative because man in and of himself has no desire to seek the living God. That's why Jesus said no one can come to the Father unless the Father first draws him. The question is, does he draw everyone? Does he work in everyone's heart? Um, T-U-L, limited atonement, says that Jesus didn't die for everyone, but only for the elect. And their rationale is that if he died for some who don't believe, then his blood was wasted. And then I, irresistible grace. Well, it all depends what you mean by irresistible grace. There is a point that a person reaches because of his response to the gospel that's going to carry him all the way to the end. And in that sense, it's irresistible. But man can freely reject God's initiative in wooing in his heart. Stephen in Acts 7 uh, speaks to his Jewish brethren and he says, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. I think it's Acts 7.51, just like your fathers did. Uh, you know, you're, you're stiff-necked. Uh, you're, you're stiff-arming God. And as an act of your will, you're resisting the Spirit of God who's trying to show you your need for a Savior. People can do that freely. And we don't need to dismiss that. And uh, P, perseverance of the saints, um, for the reformers, that not did not simply mean once saved, always saved, but that if someone is saved, they will persevere. And that's really what the opening question um, in the Revelation was respond, that I was responding to this morning in Revelation 21 in verse 8 or verse 7, the one who overcomes shall inherit these things. What does he mean? Well, in the time of the tribulation that he's describing, there will be people who will persevere all the way to death. Uh, They will not yield to Antichrist. Why? Because they are genuine saints. They won't come to the point where they renounce Christianity, embrace a false god. Because they're true saints, they will persevere. And indeed, uh, you're not saved by your perseverance, but if you are genuinely saved, you will persevere is what the, what the New Testament teaches. Anyway, um, you might want to, uh, because you're, you're, you're really dealing with uh, irresistible grace that I dealt with in Romans 8, you might want to go back and listen to some messages I did in the second half of Romans 5 where I deal with the doctrine of a limited atonement and why that's not true. Why Jesus did die for everyone and shed his blood for everyone, which becomes a basis of salvation for those who believe, but it also becomes a second basis for those who don't believe. And no unbeliever will be able to stand in the final judgment and say, well, yes, we're all sinners and we all deserve condemnation, but you made a way of escape for some and not for me. No, he made a way of escape for everyone. And that's why the Bible says he who believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe, the wrath of God abides on him. Great question. Uh, let's go to the next caller. They're waiting patiently. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. Um, I'm going to ask my question, then I'll have to hang up. Okay. Um, to listen. All right. Um, this may be a strange question, but I was in, in reading in, in verses in, like in Revelation where it, it speaks of the devil describing him as a dragon. I just was wondering, 
would the original readers have pictured, I picture a mythological creature flying with fire breathing, or would they be picturing something else like uh, like a dinosaur? I don't know if the original Greek um, helps explain that. Or... Well, that's, it's a great question, and there are different terms that are used to describe the evil one in Scripture. He is indeed the epitome of evil, and he's called the devil, um, which the Greek word means accuser. Uh, or slanderer. Uh, he's called Satan in Revelation 12, and it means the word Satan means adversary. Um, in, let's see, in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, when um, Jesus is there in the wilderness, he's called the tempter. Uh, in John 8, uh, Jesus said he was a murderer and a liar, and every time he speaks, he speaks a lie. I'm trying to think here. Um, Peter calls him a growling lion seeking someone to devour. Uh, In the Old Testament, in the opening chapters of Scripture, he's called the serpent. And, of course, Paul repeats that title uh, to the the Corinthians, and John uses the title serpent. Um, In Ephesians, he's called the prince of the power of the air. And in Revelation 12... um, and let's see, it's in, um, yeah, Revelation 12, he's called here the dragon. And so, again, it pictures his evil, profound, destructive behavior. Um, were there real dragons? I have no reason to doubt that there were not w- real dragons at one point. Because uh, just because they've gone extinct doesn't mean that they don't exist. But when Jesus uh, summarizes the devil, he says, the thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal. That I, but I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. So the Bible uses different pictures to describe this one. The devil, Satan, tempter, murderer, lion, serpent, prince of the power of darkness, dragon, prince of this world, an angel of light, the god of this world, the ruler of this world, all these different titles to describe the evil one. Um, because he hates you and God wants you to know how much the devil hates you. He wants to ruin your life and as the tempter. He will woo you in and then he'll laugh and mock at you when you yield to his ways. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. 525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980. Or email us at tbl at net. We have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Um, yes, I had a question. Um, Dr. Brogy, I um, wanted to uh, comment on a situation. Um, wanted to know what your thoughts were. Uh, we belong to a church um, in the Greenville area, Greenville, South Carolina, and two Sundays ago our pastor preached on the Christian and alcohol, and he taught that it was okay for the believer in moderation as long as the believer did not become drunk. Now, we have been taught that that was incorrect, and we were very sad to hear this, and we feel now that we have to find another church um, to take our family to, and I would just like to know your comments, and I'll just hang up and listen. All right. I appreciate that person calling this morning. Alcohol is becoming 
a really big issue in evangelicalism. Uh, when I was a new Christian uh, 37, 8 years ago, uh, virtually all evangelicals had one position, abstinence. There were very few Christians in the United States church that thought that it was okay for believers to use alcohol. Now that's totally reversing. And so you're meeting more and more Christian leaders. You got like a Mark Driscoll, who's a very popular, you know, evangelical preacher. And he said through his study of John 2, he was convicted that he should drink. Now for his first 33 years, he said God had convicted him that he should totally abstain. And now God's convicted him that he should drink. Well, you know, he's also the one who wrote a filthy book on sex and what Christians should do or not do, uh, largely what they should do, and it's tainted by his worldview and some of the things that he's done. Now, is, is he a brother in Christ? Yes, but I don't respect him. I do not respect him as a brother in Christ. Um, but he has the gospel, and for that I'm thankful. Um, lay that aside, this issue is really changing very, very fast. And so just uh, in the last 10 days, uh, Moody, uh, this is a Moody Broadcast affiliate. Moody came out and said that they are now allowing their uh, professors to use alcohol and tobacco if they so choose and it's a long policy. You can find it online. How discouraging that was, not to mention that you have playing on the Moody Broadcast Network people like Erwin Lutzer, who I heard just maybe two months ago driving home one night in a Q&A session when people write in and he uh, answers questions, teaching that Christians should totally abstain and that it's foolish for Christians today to use alcohol. He pastors the Moody Church. Uh, John MacArthur teaches total abstinence. Uh, Alistair Begg teaches total abstinence. And so uh, people get there in different ways. Um, clearly, uh, the Word of God teaches that drunkenness is a sin. Uh, that's an, a non-negotiable issue. In addition, not only does the Bible teach drunkenness is sin, but it teaches that the use of strong drink is a sin. Now, some argue total abstinence on the basis that in our day it has the appearance of evil, and certainly it does. I mean, just think about it for a moment. Look at the advertising of these godless alcohol um, companies. They're using, you know, um, seductive women to sell their product. They're evil people, evil lost people who are destroying a generation of young people. You know, they'll show up at all the spring breaks uh, giving out free beer to sell their product, to get people, you know, to like their particular brand, you know, because they recognize there's money and they're driven by greed and lust and evil motives. Um, and so, you know, if you want to support companies like that while you sip your glass of wine, go ahead. I don't care to. But number one, it, it has the appearance of evil in our day. Number two, it can cause people to stumble if someone models your behavior and they say, well, you know, Carl Brogy seems to be able to have a glass of wine. Maybe I can. And they can follow my pattern and follow, fall into drunkenness. Or they come out of an alcohol background where they hate it so much that they, they, it creates division. 
So it causes some people to stumble. And certainly it doesn't glorify God in the day that we live in. So that traditionally is how some have argued it in the last three decades. Other great scholars like John Walford, the second president of Dallas Theological Seminary, as was Don Campbell who followed him, Uh, scholars like Norman Geisler, scholars like J. Dwight Pentecost. Dwight Pentecost is 98, still alive, still teaching. Norman Geisler is still alive, still teaching. Men like that argued abstinence, I think, on a much clearer, more precise and concise reason given from the Bible, because not only does God condemn the use of, of getting drunk, he, conduces, he condemns the use of strong drink. Well, before you can apply any passage of Scripture to, to your life, you have to ask, what does it mean to the original audience? And when I understand what it means to the original audience, then I can properly apply the text to my life. So when Jesus washes feet in John 13, does he expect me to wash people's feet? Well, maybe if I live in a culture where people wear open sandals and the roads aren't paved and it's filled with dust and mud, then yeah, maybe so. But the message he's trying to communicate is servanthood, not simply washing feet. And so when I understand what it means in the original culture, then I can make proper application for my life. So what's strong drink? Is it whiskey, rum, vodka? No, the distilled alcohols don't come until almost six centuries after the Bible is completed. And so strong drink was considered unmixed wine or beer in its natural fermented form. And that's what it was precisely. And so there is an exception that God gives for the use of strong drink, and it is found in Proverbs chapter 31, where it says you can give strong drink to a dying, distressed man. Just like today, we give morphine to people who are in great pain physically uh, as an act of mercy. If we gave morphine to someone who was not in pain physically, we'd say, well, you're, you're selling illegal drugs. But we give it as an act of mercy to people who are in great pain. And God gave that allowance. Strong drink was viewed as a blessing in the Bible, not just for that purpose. It had other medical means, like in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He, pour, he poured wine on the wounds of the man injured in that parable. Why? Because it acted as an antiseptic and it killed the germs. That's what alcohol does. It can kill the germs. Um, Paul instructed Timothy to take a little wine. He was probably uh, in a Nazarite vow where he, like John the Baptist, wanted to abstain from all alcohol. And so what they typically did in the first century, strong drink was a blessing because in most places, if you drank the water, you could get sick. Um, And so they would usually, in a ratio of five parts water to one part wine— mix the wine and the water together. So you had one part wine, five parts water. It, now, there's some great scholarly articles that you could read, but they interact so much with Hebrew and Greek that if you don't know the original languages, you will get soon frustrated with them. But there's an article that if you Google it, anyone listening to me, this would be a great article to think your way through. And I've yet to have anyone read this article. It's written on a popular level without uh, interfacing with a lot of Greek. And we give it out in our discovery class at Community Bible Church. 
but it's written on a level that's very understandable and it's well-researched. And if you read more scholarly articles or arguments by men like Norman Geisler or Dr. Walvert or J. Dwight Pentecost, and, and by the way, most of the people that you hear on the Moody Broadcast Network studied under John Walvert and J. Dwight Pentecost, they were their professors. Even John MacArthur, who did not attend Dallas Seminary, but Grace Seminary, was largely influenced in a lot of his thinking by those men. And so, again, what Moody did was awful. I'm writing the president as well as all 200-plus affiliates in the Moody Broadcast Network. And I'm very disappointed over what Moody has done. I hope they're going to rescind their decision. In either case... um, To use alcohol today is very, very foolish. And for that pastor to stand up in front of his church and to give permission, in my judgment, was very, very foolish. There's already a problem on Christian campuses across America with the use of alcohol. I've already dealt with people who've gone to Moody who, um, and I'm not just, you know, signaling, separating Moody from other Christian colleges. Any Christian college, there's always going to be students there who are going to use alcohol. And it's been catastrophic, some of the results in some of the students' lives who have participated in it. Now, most of the kids at Moody are pretty solid Christian kids, but not all of them. And that's going to be true in any institution that you go to. But now to basically encourage its use, that's just foolish. And it's foolish for that pastor to do that because he's giving wide open endorsement to all these young people. Uh, My son, um, who's right now at Harvard Law School, but he lives in Washington, D.C. That's where his home is. And he was there, you know, again over the summer doing an internship in a law firm. And he reminded me again, he said, Dad, I've yet to see any of my Christian friends in the church that I attend not at one time or another have too much wine. That's just what it's like. Listen, that's what happens People drink too much. Um, And you can just even logically reason it. The first time someone has a glass of wine and they've never had alcohol in their life, I'm telling you, they're high. They're feeling a buzz. They may not be falling over, though some would. They may not be slurring their words, but some would. But anybody who'd never used alcohol before, the first time they have a full glass, they've got a buzz. And the greatest commandment that Jesus gave is to love God with your whole heart, mind, and soul. And the second commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so you tell me how someone with a buzz can be worshiping God with their whole heart, mind, and soul. They cannot. Well, people say, I can drink a glass of wine today and not get a buzz. Oh, so you had to build up a resistance in your system. Yeah, well, yeah, but I have one. So what you're telling me is I want to sin for a while until I build up the resistance so that I can, you know, drink my alcohol. I've seen John chapter 2 totally abused. Um, And people make statements that are virtually blasphemous over what our Savior did. And I walked through that passage very carefully, and it's online at searchthescriptures.org, and that would be a great alcohol sermon to listen to. I, I probably need to preach another sermon on this because it's, it's been a while since I've addressed it. There's hundreds of new believers in our congregation, but we do address it 
in our discovery class for those new Christians. But get the Google the article, Christianity Today, uh, Wine Drinking in the New Testament. The author is Stein, S-T-E-I-N. It appeared in Christianity Today, arguing in the 1970s, arguing for abstinence. But it's an excellent article. Read that. Give it to your pastor. Listen, I wouldn't have my kids in a church where a pastor is saying it's okay to use alcohol. I don't want, I wouldn't want my children or my grandchildren influenced by that kind of pastor. I don't care how godly he says he is. He is creating a stumbling block for my children or my grandchildren if that's what he is going to advocate. And a lot of pastors today, they don't want to be controversial. They don't want to send any ripples through the congregation. They don't want to lose any members. Uh, They don't want to lose any potential visitors. Um, And if you take a stance on this, they'll call you legalistic. I'm not talking about legalistic. I'm talking about obeying God and obeying what God's word says. And even if it were okay to drink a little wine in our day, um, as they say, I wouldn't want to support the industry because it is an evil industry. It is an evil industry. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox and let's go to the next question. All right. uh, Let's see. I think we've got time for this one. Uh, Was Judas destined to go to hell? Well, um, he went to hell. Jesus said it would be better for him not to have been better for him not to have been born than to uh, have betrayed the Messiah. Uh, But the scripture says, like in John 13, for he knew the one who is betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean, a reference to salvation. He had already made some similar statements, like in John 6. um, But there were some of you who did not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Again, speaking of Judas. And again, in John 17, I think it is, um, here it is, it says, While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which you had given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. And here's the corker, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Judas clearly was not a believer. He had never been cleansed, John 13 says. Uh, He was not among those who were truly apostles. He had never given his life to Christ. Um, And the scripture prophesied this would happen. And God prophesying that Judas was not a puppet where he had no free will. Judas chose to reject Christ over greed and other self-centered reasons. So God didn't make him an unbeliever. God didn't create him for this purpose. He freely rejected the Lord Jesus as his personal Savior. And that's why he's in hell. But God knows the beginning and the end. We call it foreknowledge. And he saw that this would happen. We're out of time tonight. CBC of Bluffton. Come and visit me at 715. Go to the website.